Judeo-Christian ethic. As we've been looking at these principles, we have recognized that this great nation, the United States of America, was founded upon these principles of the Judeo-Christian ethic. What is a Judeo-Christian ethic? The Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, together the full counsel of God has formed the wisdom by which this nation governs itself. The three branches that protect us from any abuses and, and these seven principles that override and govern the authorities that run this nation, that we're responsible to God as our authority for how this nation should operate. Our founding fathers established that in the original documents and use it, used it as a pattern to follow that would, as they understood, would keep this nation great. If we begin losing this uh, uh, foundation in the Judeo-Christian ethic, we're going to start losing our liberties, our freedoms, and really the, the blessings that come with following the principles of God. And uh, I think we can see in, in American history uh, that has happened. It's had times of ups and downs in, as a nation. It never has really achieved what its original documents wanted it to achieve. I mean, some of us can say, hey, it was great back at a particular time, but for, not for everybody in the United States. It wasn't what it should have been. So we're finding our way there. That means we shouldn't give up. We've seen this nation recover from sin and war and civil war and come out of it and move more towards righteousness. It can happen again. Let's not give up on it, amen? And so let's get back to the foundations and the vision that the founders had so that we can steer the ship back on course again. And that's what we're hoping for. Well, principles number six and seven are this. Principle number six is the concept of decency. Civility and decency. Proverbs 22, 39 says, love your neighbor as yourself. So the concept is that America is going to be a place where we trust and we believe that all men are created equal, right? That they have uh, unalienable rights by the Lord God. That everybody has a right and a sanctity to life. Now, like I said, historically, uh, this nation failed that right off the starting gates right, with the issues of slavery and so forth. But we're, we got closer to it as we reminded those. There's always been a remnant of godly people who have been telling this nation, stay on course. Even when the Constitution was signed, you had clergy and preachers saying, we must end slavery, we must stop it. And uh, warning all along, abolitionists and those who were fighting for it because they believed what was written should be manifest in our government and in our land. And we, we're getting there. We're getting there. So praise God for that. So we've always had a sense, and America's always been a, the, the biblical principle to love your neighbor as yourself, that you're to honor and respect people and to have civility in our government. We don't want tyranny. We don't want uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, what's, uh, anarchy, but we need civility of government and peace. We believe in peaceful demonstrations. We believe in properly doing these things. And so there's always been a sense of civility. America has worked to feed the poor, care for the downtrodden, always wanted to clothe the naked, and protect its weakest citizens. That's what this nation always looked to. We always looked to help others. 
and to, in fact, if you'll remember on the Statue of Liberty, that quote, bring me all of your downtrodden, all who are naked, all who are poor, who, are, who need a place. This is the place. And that was our, our motto. That was our effort to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, let me share with you probably our highest point as a nation in civility and decency. America's best common decency and morality came with our benevolent spirit. Now, I want to share with you a, a phrase. It's set, called disinterested benevolence. That's kind of an interesting phrase. It's a 19th century word, disinterested. Now, that almost sounds like, yeah, well, I'm not interested. I don't care. You know, be benevolent. Nah, I don't want to. Oh, well, that's disinterested benevolence. That's not what it means. The sense is this. Disinterested benevolence mean, means that you're being good and benevolent. Benevolent means Bene, meaning good. Benevolent, meaning being good to other people. Disinterested benevolence is you're not doing it for yourself. It's not for self-interest that you are putting clothes on someone's back. It's not for self-interest that you're giving someone some food so that maybe you can get something out of it. Disinterested benevolence means that I am doing this purely because you need help and I have the means to do it. And that was the probably the greatest times in American history when the church had developed this understanding, disinterested benevolence, loving and serving both God and people. Loving and serving both God and people. My love to God. And you know in the first epistle of, of John, in 1 John, he says you, that you cannot love God and hate your brother. You cannot do that. If you say you love God, you must love your brother. And this is disinterested benevolence. This means that I'm not going to do things for you so that I get something out of it. How many of you hear the phrase all the time, what's in it for me? Right? And that's how we gauge things and measure things, whether we're going to get involved or not. Well, what's in it for me? Well, how about nothing? But doing it unto the glory of God. Whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. If you see a person in need, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? If you see someone in need, you help them. I was at uh, Home Depot last week, and a lady wheeled up. She only had one leg. I knew immediately what she wanted. She wanted money. So she rolled up and said, hey, can you help me? She went through this long speech. I didn't have to hear the speech. Lady, it's all right. I'll give you whatever I got, honestly. And, and all I could do was I had a buck 50. <laughs> if she understood and knew me, she knew that's all I had. I'm thinking she thought, you know, I... I, I was holding, on, holding back on her because she kept giving me a story. I said, I'm sorry, this is all I got, honest. It's all my change and this is my dollar. It's all I got. All right, I, I used my charge card for this other thing I got. This is all I got. But it's, I, it's not a question of what's in it for me. Did anybody see me do this? I hope that I'm going to get some acclaim. No. Disinterested benevolence. Now, here's the key to this phrase. Uh, it came about through the revival. Now, now, it's interesting because the earliest revival, the, the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards was in the early 1700s. And uh, in the early 1700s, Samuel Hopkins, Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Hopkins was that fiery preacher that sent a prophetic word to the Constitutional Congress that was writing up the Constitution saying, you must not have slavery. The church forbids it. We speak against it. This nation will have a curse on it if you do it. And, and uh, that, so they wrote that every man was created equal and all that, but it didn't come to pass, did it, for another hundred years or so. So 
that was a problem. But anyways, there were believers here. And what happened with Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening, there was an amazing revival in the United States. People were, and right at the time when we're getting the Constitution written, we're founding fathers are being established. And so this wind of revival comes into the nation, and out of that comes the sense of disinterested benevolence. In other words, that when the Holy Spirit moves on a people and moves on the church, the church just doesn't get a glory party going, but the church then shows up on the streets to touch a world and to share the gospel. You remember that in the judgment of nations, Jesus said, well done. You've honored me. They said, well, he, he said, you've given me clothes. When I was naked, you gave me food. When I was hungry, you visited me. When did we do all this? When you did it to the least of these. So what happened when revival came to this nation, it immediately brought the church into another level of glory, but then out into the streets to demonstrate this glory. That's important. Really, if you want the sign of a true revival, brothers and sisters, it's not what's happening inside the walls of the church. It's what's happening in the community when the church explodes outward and unashamedly begins to give disinterested benevolence. You begin to give up what you have because you understand how blessed you are. You're not, you don't need seven cars anymore. You'll give away two. Maybe three. You need, don't need a hundred pairs of shoes in your closet. Start giving it away. Start doing things. Why? To the glory of God. What's in it for me? That's not it. That's not disinterested benevolence. So what's amazing is this concept of disinterested benevolence went on, and then it hung around till the second great awakening, and Charles Finney began to speak. God put this on his heart. If you've not read Charles Finney, uh, great revivals in the Midwest through Charles Finney, and the second great awakening. So wherever there's revival, when God revives the church, he revives a nation, and out of the second great awakening and the sense of disinterested benevolence, the civility and the morality of the nation peaked. It went up. And out of this time period of Charles Finney and, and disinterested benevolence came the Salvation Army. Right? They were playing that song, Onward Christian Soldiers. They literally took the sense of being soldiers of salvation, went into the streets and sang gospel songs and had gospel meetings on corners. Right now the Salvation Army is basically uh, uh, used furniture and used clothes reclaimed. But back in the day, it was a mighty move of God. And they were all about disinterested benevolence. They would, people would sign up to preach the gospel, give their life away, give their possessions away. It changed the climate of this nation. Orphanages sprang up, hospitals sprang up. Um, D.L. Moody and uh, the YMCA was, a, uh, was a, an outgrowth of disinterested benevolence. A lot of people don't even understand what the YMCA is. Young Men's Christian Association. It was a total Christian movement where young men who were without home and, and wayward could come into this place and get a meal and stay there and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were in every city making a move. So this, this was the pinnacle of that civility and morality. Why and how did it happen? Through revival in the church. 
that began to make people get out and bring the gospel into the streets and affect the nation. The abolitionists were huge, and the move to stop slavery was huge with the second great awakening. The catalysts of these things reached into the fabric of American society and changed us and changed this nation for the betterment. Stemmed from revival in the church. That's what we need. We're a nation built on Christian ethics, Christian principles. So when God brings a shockwave into his church, we get back repositioned into that place and begin to move with power over this land. You have to understand the spiritual power that's over this land. If you've not been outside of the United States, you, you kind of don't have a sense of what I'm talking about. But there is a spirit of light and truth over America because it was founded on Christian principles and that uh, spiritual structure authority in the heavenlies is over this land. I've been in places that never had a Christian foundation or biblical foundation. I've been in Africa. I've been in China. I've been in Russia. I've been in Pakistan. These are nations that didn't have Christian foundations. And when you arrive there and you walk into it, there's so much voodoo, or there's so much ancestral worship, there's so many dark senses of spirits over this land, you can feel it. And everybody I know that's been on a mission trip, you get back home to America, you go, hallelujah. You become very patriotic. God bless America. You recognize and see how there is a spiritual blessing over this nation because of its founding fathers and because of the revivals that God injected uh, into this nation again to revive it. How many of you know we must have another revival? If this nation's going to turn around, if we're going to reach the, the hoping goal that was originally founded for this nation, the church must have another revival. And what we're looking for is disinterested benevolence. So in that time, we began to see through these things the, the, the benevolence of God being ministered through the church into the fabric of our society. And uh, it wasn't perfect, but again, civility was, was there. You could leave your doors unlocked. You could leave your car running at the corner store. You could trust the neighbor. You could walk down the street. You could trust that if you were in need, you could stop a car and someone would help you. Something's changed, hasn't it? Something has drastically changed, and I believe we're seeing America at her worst. It's been through some dark times, but we're entering into some times that are unprecedented. Filth. And vulgarity is now reigning supreme. It's our entertainment. Uh, you can't watch a movie without some level of vul vulgarity. And, and most of the comedic entertainment is nothing more than junior high locker room humor. It's, it's pretty disgusting. And it, we've produced industries of sin. And uh, a good friend of our church and a friend of mine, uh, Apostle Linnell Caldwell, I don't know if you... Remember, uh, Linnell, his church used to be right down the street. We used to do a lot of things together. Well, uh, Apostle Linnell Caldwell has written a book called Sin is a Business. Sin is a Business. And what he does in that book, you go into the insights that he's showing you, is that the power of sin is to make money. 
People are addicted to gambling for the sake of money. They're addicted to pornography so that people make money. They're addicted to drugs so that they can make money. It's all a matter of the currency of this world. And so sin makes money. The devil knows that. And people know that. Right? You've got people who are selling drugs who wouldn't even dare take this stuff, but they're making the cash on it. Right? And so the purveyors of filth, it's a business. Let me, let me show you something really interesting here. Take a look at these uh, statistics. I don't know if you can see this, but it, it was by uh, the Gallup poll. And a Gallup poll done in 2010, the question was, how would you rate the overall state of moral values in this country today? Where's our morality, our civility in this, in this age, in 2010? Uh, is it excellent, good, fair, or poor? Now, the rating is 45% of the people say, 45, almost half the population says that the moral value of the United States is poor. Very bad. All right? And 15% said, it's really good. We like it this way. All right? So, so you got folks, the, the rest of the folks, somewhere in between here. But 45% saying poor moral value in this nation. That's a pretty hefty chunk, isn't it? But here's what doesn't make sense. When you ask them what is moral, what is acceptable morally in the same poll, they, uh, look at this now, according to 2010, Gay and lesbian relations has now passed the 50% mark for acceptable morality. Five years ago, it was down in the 20%. But by enough commercialization, by enough putting it in your face, by enough talking about it, by putting it on every TV show, every sitcom, in every movie, on every radio broadcast, and having it taught in every elementary school, it is now at the place where 52% of the population says it is morally acceptable. Homosexuality is morally acceptable. 43% it's morally wrong. Now that's a huge shift in a matter of five years. Where are we going to be in five more? All right? Abortion. Abortion. 38% say it's morally acceptable, 50% say it's morally wrong. Now this has been a good shift. This has shifted a lot in, in the right direction lately. And we're starting to get some progress where people are beginning to recognize that abortion is killing lives. So at least we're shifting on this one. Having a baby outside of marriage, 54% say no problem, that's fine. 40% say it's morally wrong. Sex between an unmarried man and woman, um, 59 or 60% say no problem, that's not morally wrong. 38 say yes. Gambling, 61% say no problem, that's fine. 34% say no. Do you know, you know how many gambling issues we've got in this country? How many financial crises in, in homes and in families because of gambling? And, and it's been uh, legalized in almost every major city. Medical research using stem cells obtained from human embryos or aborted babies. 59% says no problem. 32 says it's morally wrong. Cloning animals, 31 say uh, that's acceptable. 63 say no, we shouldn't clone animals. That's interesting, isn't it? We're more concerned about animals 
than we are about human babies. Wow, that's interesting. The death penalty, 65% say, say yes, it's acceptable, 26% say no. Divorce, 69 or 70% of the population says yes, that's acceptable, 23% says no. Suicide, 15% say uh, it's acceptable, 77% say no. Cloning humans, no, 9%, you can't do that. Uh, I'm sorry, 88% say no, you cannot clone humans, 9% say not a problem. Polygamy, this is interesting, polygamy. One husband has more than one wife at the same time. 7% uh, of the population says that's fine, 90% says no. I'd like to know why. I mean, I'm in the reasoning, now get me on this, right? It's not that I want another wife, I'm telling you. 90% uh, say that's morally wrong for a man to have two wives, but it's morally fine for two men to be married. I don't understand that, the thinking in that. All right, anyways, I'll move on. Married men and women having an affair. 6% say no, that's not good. 92% say, I'm sorry, 92% say it's not good. 6% say, hey, why not? So what's interesting is you see some odd moral decisions here, but yet overall, 40, half the population says we're in a bad place morally. So what are the morals and ethics of the United States? Nobody knows. There's no authority. They need someone to help them understand what is right and wrong. Is there anybody that has a sense of what is right and wrong according to God? Is there an organization out there? Is there a group of people that might be able to help this United States? Can you think of anybody? The church. In fact, Jesus calls us a pillar of truth. He says we're the salt and we're the light to this world. This is actually a chart of the church and the success of the church. When we're going to be charting the morality of a nation, we're actually charting the effectiveness of the church, the saltiness of the church, aren't we? It reflects on those who hold what is true and moral, who have a compass. If you get lost, blame it on the map. We're the map to what is true and right. Amen? Let's look at the seven deadly sins as described as what is morally right and wrong. You can find them in Scripture. Let's ask and see if the United States of America... Uh, has its civility and its morality according to these sins. Are there any issues with anger, you think, in this nation? Right? Road rage. You hear it on the news every night. Someone shooting someone else. It's ridiculous. Do you know that half the, not half, almost three-quarters of the, the crimes committed aren't even reported? I used to work at the 36th District Court uh, downtown. I was a file clerk uh, when I got out of college. I needed a job. And so I got a job, and I used to process warrants. And I used to stand in front of a Xerox machine every day, taking all these warrants and all this and all. And, and I would read them, too. And I am telling you, uh, it wasn't reported in the Detroit News or the Detroit Free Press or on the TV as to how many 
murders were going on. There's anger. Domestic violence is out of control. All right, let's go on. Do you think there's uh, any greed? Do we have any greed in America? We are all suffering right now in an economy from greed. Fannie Mae, right? Freddie Mac, the mortgage issues. People lying in their pockets. Well, our, our, we almost lost our economy with this mortgage crisis. A lot of folks don't realize it, but we were severely close to this entire economy collapsing over it. Then, of course, you have all the Wall Street issues, don't you? You think there's greed going on in this country? Everything's being run by greed right now. How about laziness? A failed work ethic, entitlements. We've got a huge laziness, which is a big problem because you'll remember we studied the Protestant work ethic last week. We looked at it, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago. We looked at how important it is to have a healthy work ethic, to, to function and operate under the glory of God and to sanctify your job and what you do as to God's glory and having a strong work ethic. If you don't have a strong work ethic and laziness, apathy, begins to breed in a society, it will lean towards socialism and eventually communism. We've got to be on guard. How about pride? Do we have any issues with pride in America? You can tell an American in any foreign country, they walk like they own the place. Americans, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but the ugly American. And most people overseas look at Americans as ugly because they're loud, they're bombastic, they want what they want, and they want it now. It's the culture they've come into, basically, brats. Right? Of course, I'm sure that none of you fit that description. Hallelujah. God has set us free and opened our eyes to that. All right, how about lust? Does this nation have a problem with lust? Listen to these statistics. Every second... $3,075 is spent on pornography. Every second, $3,075. All right, someone do the math. Five seconds just went by. Every second, 28,258 internet viewers are viewing pornography. Every second. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is made in the United States. Why? Why are they making so much porn? Because money. Because people are addicted. It's the new drug. It's a new addiction that they found, and people pay for it. So put two and two together. You addict people, and you make money. American children are consuming hardcore pornography starting at age 11. Four out of five 16-year-olds regularly access pornographic sites. The pornography industry is a $97 billion business worldwide. In the United States, it's $13 billion, and it's $3 billion on the Internet. Makes money. I think we have a lust problem. How about envy? Do we have any envy problems? Well, thank God that we have the church and the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ to break the spirit of envy. The church people don't have to any envy anybody who has money because God's going to make us all rich. If you would just put $100 in the envelope today, I'm telling you, if you would put $100 in the offering today, you're going to get back a thousandfold, a hundredfold tomorrow or another time. But just give me your money and you'll be blessed. Sounds like I'm mocking. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
When the church is needed most to break the spirit of envy over people, to teach a biblical work ethic, and to teach, uh, what is it, Dis, di, I even forgot the, the phrase, uh, disinterested benevolence, we're teaching you need more. You need more. you got to get you some more. Wow. Last of all, we know that we don't have this problem, gluttony. Wow, okay. Do Americans consume? I'll never forget the first foreign mission trip I was ever on. I went to Russia, and when I was over in Russia, they gave us our plates and our glasses, and I thought, well, this must be for the hors d'oeuvres or something, because the dish was this big, and the glass was about that tall, and I thought, are you kidding me? I'm used to platters. We eat off of platters. We don't have dishes. We have mugs. Not everybody else. They don't have that kind of food. Pastor Charlie and I were hungry. We weren't satisfied by the food. So we went over to stand in line uh, to get bread because there was a bakery around the corner. And we recognized that we're standing there for a while. All we're thinking about is, boy, I got some peanut butter in my suitcase. Let's get some bread. Have some peanut butter on that bread. It's going to be good. And we're standing in line, standing in line. Then the next thing we realized is, these people are here for their one loaf of bread for the day. We're going for a snack. We looked around. These people were standing in line for hours just to pay whatever they had to get a loaf of bread. We were going to get a loaf of bread, crack it open, and eat all our peanut butter. And we got out of line and said, this, this isn't right. We, we, we consume energy. You know how much oil we consume? How much gasoline we consume? How much of everything we consume? It's, it's amazing, and it is, if, if, if I, could, will you let me be so bold? It's sin. It's sin. With the freedom we have, we have entertained ourselves and pleasured ourselves and prospered ourselves into sin. And it will breed more sin. Now, to top it off, I believe personally, brothers and sisters, that the United States of America is that whore of Babylon in Revelation 18. Let me read to you Revelation 18, verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. I'll never forget when I was in China, I had an opportunity to work one day with some sculptors. I have a degree in sculpting, and, and uh, we didn't have mission work to do that day, so they let me hang out with, uh, with a couple young sculptors who were making plaques in a factory. So I was sitting there. I couldn't speak Chinese. They couldn't speak English, but we could sculpt together. And so I'm sculpting and working on some stuff, and they had music, and, and they were young, you know, and they're, they're singing to the song and giggling, and, and the translator came in. I said, hey, hey, what's that song about? It's catchy, you know, and they're really getting into it. And he said, oh, it's about a girl who likes a boy, and they finally hold hands. And I go, oh, well, that's cute, you know. They're all giggly about it, and I'm like, okay. And so, and, and this was an international station. Then the next song that comes on is Lady Gaga. And she's singing about, I don't even have to tell you, it's just right all out there. I felt so ashamed of what America was exporting around the world. And, and 
the atmosphere in that place shifted from these young people who were innocently considering holding hands and the cuteness of it to flagrant sexual activity. It shifted the feeling in that room and my level of embarrassment was like, oh God, what does America, what is America known for now? We export sin to all the nations of the world. Why do you think the Muslim countries call us the great Satan? What have we been producing for them to judge the moral character? You can't, you can't blame them for that accusation. Now, here's the other problem. America says it's a Christian nation. And Christians are therefore, think of the logic here. We understand the difference. We're not promoting Lady Gaga. We're not promoting all the smut and filth. But consider what they're seeing on the outside objectively. America is a Christian nation. America exports more pornography than any other nation and abuses and, and brings more filth than anybody else. Therefore, Christians are a bunch of immoral hypocrites. Because if America's a Christian nation, that ain't right. Here's the thing. Christianity has not separated itself enough from the sin of this nation. Let me conclude with this issue of civility and decency and how we need to get back to a biblical basis uh, is basically what will be coming out this next year. The new postage stamp. Harvey Milk is on the next postage stamp that is going to be on your mail. Who is Harvey Milk? Homosexual activist. There was a movie out done by him. But according to Randy Schiltz, who is his autobog or who is his biographer, Milk repeatedly engaged in adult child sexual activity. He was a pedophile, and he advocated having multiple homosexual partners at once. At one time, I should say. Because he did not believe that the homosexual community should follow any of the mores of heterosexual life. The United States Post Office says this about those people they put on stamps. To commemorate positive contributions to American life, history, and culture. But they specifically state, the U.S. Post Office says, we shall not or never issue a stamp in honor of a religious institution or a religious individual whose principal achievements are associated with religious undertakings or belief. You'll never see a Mother Teresa stamp, but you will see a Harvey Milk stamp. So that's how this nation identifies itself with pedophiles as heroes. You think we've got a problem here? Now the thing is, built in the fabric of this nation already is morality and decency. All right? So the bus has gone off the road. It's about to go over the cliff. But we can grab the wheel again and get back on the road that was designed for this nation. Amen? Will anybody reach out and grab that wheel? Amen. Now, let's go to the next and final phase of what we want to talk about, and that is principle number seven, that a nation is accountable to God. Now, that's where they've successfully derailed this nation. 
Modern atheists, the new atheist uh, approach is very evangelistic. Atheism is on the rise. It is, has great bravado and an amazing boldness. It's being taught everywhere, and it, they are targeting your children and our young people. So atheism is the best way to get rid of God. And by doing this, the nation is therefore now no longer uh, accountable to God. If our ruling government is not accountable to God, can there therefore be a new morality where cheating and bribery and, and special interest groups can get what they want? That's what we see happening here. People are no longer accountable to God. They're only accountable to the law, and half the time the law is, and the legal system is as crooked as the crooks. We've got trouble, don't we? Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's coming a judgment. Jesus said this, What's done in secret will be spoken to on the housetops to all people. God will judge the generations and the nations. Matthew 25, Joel chapter 3, and Isaiah 33 speak about the time when Christ is going to come and judge the nations. Do you remember when Jesus is walking through... Um, Bethsaida and uh, a couple other cities that he's walking through in, in time and they're not receiving him as Messiah. And he says, woe unto you. It will be worse for you on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you imagine that? Because they would not receive Jesus Christ. Now there's going to, I don't understand it and I'm first to admit it, when God is going to judge the nations, he'll judge the United States. But the United States, I mean, how do you judge a nation over its entire history? Do you judge it according to the generation who's in charge of that nation at that time? Whose generation is the United States under right now? Whose watch is it accountable to? Us. In the book of Acts, it says, David served his generation and then died and was laid to rest with his fathers. So the nations will be judged, and I'm thinking by each generation, God is going to say, what did this generation do with America? What did this generation do with Russia? What did this generation do with another nation? And they will be judged. Well, we're on our watch now. As long as I have breath in my lungs... I'm responsible, not only for my family, but for my city, and not only for my city, but by my nation. Well, what am I supposed to do to change a nation? Vote! That would be a best place to start. Would you agree? Somebody agree? Amen. All right. Now, what God has done for accountability of a nation, that we're all accountable to God and His righteousness for this nation is he's put authorities in your life to govern our lives. The first authorities put over our lives is our home or our family. That's why we're to honor our mother and father. We're to listen to the authority that you're immediately put under as you're growing up. Secondly, you're to honor uh, the authority of city and state government. Ultimately, federal government as well. So God puts these authorities over our lives so we will learn to honor them and as we honor authority, we receive more authority and power in our lives. The less you honor authority, the less authority and power you have till you will end up 
sidebarred and of none effect in a community. So, last authority are religious institutions, ultimately the church. I find it fascinating and interesting that on the seal of the city of Roseville are these three emblems, home, government, and church. That's an open door for us. That's an open door for the church in this city to have an impact for this community. We can go in and speak to the mayor, speak to the city council, and speak to the governing bodies and say, look it, you put us on that plaque too. We have authority like you have authority. And guess what? This leadership here wants it. They want the church involved. That's an invitation. Find out what city you live in, what is on their seal. Most of these city seals have the church on it. But the church hasn't showed up in many, many years. No one goes, no one attends, no one talks to city government anymore in the church. Because the church has all but abandoned the world because it's so secular and they're so evil. I'll never forget, and I'll, I'll close here, I'll never forget when I was uh, in Russia and uh, we were going to a particular square where uh, there were a lot of gypsies and a lot of uh, black market folks who were selling things and all this. It wasn't the safest place in the world to go to. So we were on our way to go there. I was with a tour of American pastors. There were about 80 of them. So we're getting ready to go into this square and into this community. We're going to minister and so forth. And I remember one of the pastors saying, why are we going there? Isn't it dangerous? Isn't it dark? That really struck me. I thought, aren't we the light? Where else should we be going? <laughs> to the darkest place in the city that needs the light. Amen? But what's happened to the church in America is we stay away from the darkness, we stay away from the world, because like Pharisees, we're afraid that it might get on us. Come on, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Walk into the darkness, walk into the places, and begin to be bold to share the love of Jesus. David Wilkerson, as a young pastor, knew that he needed to go into the streets of New York and go into the city gangs and begin to preach the gospel. And Nikki Cruz, one of the head uh, gang leaders, got saved and changed that whole focus and that whole work. And a ministry was born that has uh, changed uh, young people's lives around the world because someone was brave enough to go where the gospel was not being preached. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. That's what we want to do and what we want to become. And I'll tell you this, last of all, America's only hope is a revived church. Thank God the Statue of Liberty, that's beautiful, but I like what one church in Tennessee did with it. They put this in the hand of the Statue of Liberty. That is standing out front of a church in Tennessee. And the only hope for this nation, and the only liberty you'll ever find, is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what this nation needs. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you.